Hey friends, welcome back to the Beautiful Tension Podcast. My name is Gary and I'm stoked you're tuning in. This podcast, Beautiful Tension, is a place where we talk about hard things, yet we also acknowledge the beauty that's come from those things. We talk about resilience, what it looks like to make this world better, and so much more. Joining us for today's episode is Mike Roth. Mike is the lead pastor and co-founder of Pearl Church, a faith community based in Portland, Oregon. Over the span of his time in ministry, he's earned several degrees, including his recent PhD, specializing in the effectiveness of biblical literary figures to hold attention and make meaning. Among the many shifts Pearl Church has seen over the last two decades, one of the most controversial was the move to broaden their marriage practice to include the LGBTQ community. In this penultimate episode of season one, we talk about the transitions that led up to that decision, including a move from dogma and doctrine to values, embracing women in leadership, and practicing infant baptism. I'm really excited for today's episode. As a gay Christian man, this episode is deeply personal to me. By the time I came out, my faith had been completely deconstructed. I knew that the only way I would be able to engage the church again was by going to one that embraced all of me, including my sexuality. Pearl Church has become just that, and the community there has helped my faith in numerous ways. That being said, I wanted to talk to Mike not only about the church's decision to broaden their marriage practice, but everything that led up to that point. With much ground to cover, I decided to split this interview into two episodes. This week's episode is part one, and next week's episode is part two, which is also the last episode of the season. Anyway, Mike had so many good things to share, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Thanks again for listening, and enjoy the show. Mike, thank you so much for being on the podcast and making time for this today. It's my pleasure, Gary. Really happy to be here with you. Have you been on a podcast before? (laughs) Recently, actually, I was on one for the first time. I was interviewed for some PhD work that I did related to the paper and what it was about and what I learned. And it was for prospective students who were considering going into a a similar pursuit of study. But other than that, this is (laughs) it for me. (laughs) This is it. I love it. Well, it's good good to have you on the podcast today. For those who may not know you, and feel free to answer this however you'd like, but who is Mike Roth? How would you describe yourself? Uh, Born in beloved Portland, Oregon. I've lived here most of my life, married to Jen, and we have three kids, all right around those, those teen years, which is really fun. I seem to enjoy being a parent more and more as the kids age and develop and begin to think more deeply. So that's been really fun the last few years. I pastor at Pearl Church. Pearl Church is a community that I co-founded back in 2001. It's on the north end of downtown Portland in a neighborhood called the Pearl District. So I've been there for about 19 years now. And on the side, I host a website uh, which explores the meaning-making of language and critiques the dynamics of language that I think often result in violent ideologies. And I attempt on that site to try and articulate an ecology of Christian language that nurtures human flourishing without 
shame or guilt or duty or, you know, a lot of uh, the motivations that often animate people for religious reasons. Hmm. So what led you to A, being a pastor, but also B, pursuing your doctoral studies and this whole trajectory you've had towards work in the church and language and writing and so on? I I kind of fell into pastoring, honestly. It wasn't something that I was planning on doing. I sort of had a come-to-Jesus moment going into my senior year in high school, and so that led me to uh, wanting to learn more about the Bible. So I went to college and majored in biblical studies, but I was imagining after that, maybe going into therapy, maybe becoming a family therapist or something like that. I was, I was thinking of going in that direction. Uh, Jen and I got married early in college, and I was working in the middle of the night at UPS, uh, loading the brown trucks that everybody sees driving around. And then I'd get off early in the morning, go home, wash my arms from my elbows down, and then go to school for the day. And and catch an afternoon nap and try to get some schooling done and then go back to work in the middle of the night. So that's what my life looked like. And then the church that I grew up in uh, called me and said, hey, we have 12 kids. They're all in the junior high, high school range, and we do not know what to do with them. And so we will pay you whatever you're getting paid at UPS if you will come take care of them. And I didn't even pray about it. I just said, yes, you know, so <laughs> I like to joke and say that, you know, the pursuit of ministry was really just a phone call out of working at UPS. <laughs> but then probably just a few months into doing that, I was pursuing theological studies, but then I was trying to start this youth group and I had this beautiful moment. It was one of those Adenic Portland summer nights where the sky is blue, but it's not too warm and there are no bugs. And we were playing soccer down on this soccer field that was on the property of one of the families that had a couple kids in the youth group. And the parents were up sort of a level and they were grilling food for us to eat after we finished playing soccer. And I was looking around at these 12 kids and a couple volunteers and everybody was laughing and playing and booting this ball around. And I just had this feeling of incredible fortune to have the parents up there tangibly supporting my life so that I could freely, you know, pour myself out in the lives of these kids, be a part of their growing up journey. And I would say that was, for me, the, the call into ministry. I r remember feeling in that moment very grateful to be able to do that work. So that was that was my call into ministry. And then, as I mentioned, doing ministry while being while pursuing theological studies, I just hit a real rhythm there. And so as I continued to do youth ministry, I graduated college and then I went right into a Master's of Divinity program. And while I was about halfway through that program, I was part of a group of seven people that decided to start Pearl Church. And so when we started Pearl Church, I started preaching more. So the other pastor and I, we just sw switched off every week. So he'd preach, then I'd preach, he'd preach, and then I preached. And I realized as I was wrapping up my MDiv that I would really benefit from further study in uh, helping me think about how to talk about the scriptures. 
So then that led into a doctorate of ministry where I studied uh, the rhetorical function of biblical genres. That is to say, you know, the scriptures are made up of different kinds of literature and those literature, those different types of literature function different rhetorically. They impact us differently. And so that was really fun for me. And that sort of gave me a window into how complex and literary the Bible is. And so that sort of woke further interest in me, which led to a PhD where I explored how literary forms shape ideas and also how they capture attention in the brain. So that's a little bit about my call into ministry and then also a little bit about my educational journey. Yeah. I want to get into that the theological piece of that. But first, I'm curious, what denominations, what backgrounds did you all come from, the seven of you that started Pearl Church? And that's in 2001, right? Yes, 2001. Yes, we say that Pearl Church started like a a bad joke. So (laughs) Jen and I grew up Plymouth Brethren, and Joseph and Amy grew up Foursquare. Jason and Heather grew up Baptist and Steve grew up Evangelical Free Church of America. And so we'll sometimes say, what do you get if a Plymouth Brethren and a Baptist and an EV Free and a Foursquare walk into a bar and say, hey, do you want to start a church? Uh, Well, you get Pearl Church, which basically meant that we planted a non-denominational, pretty strongly conservative evangelical church that just didn't affiliate with any of the four denominations that we had grown up in. And so it was kind of just a a ragtag, smashed together, sort of four different evangelical traditions to comprise a new non-denominational tradition called Pearl Church. So that's how we started. We started with very similar theology. Uh, we all looked very much alike. We were all young out kids. So it was a very homogenous community that we started. And I think one thing that that makes Pearl's story unique and interesting is that I think as churches age or as denominations age, dogma and doctrine tend to get more robust and more thought out and more explanatory. And Pearl Church has actually gone the other way as we've grown and as we've encountered a diversity of people who come to call Pearl Church home, we've recognized that we, by starting pretty much a conservative evangelical church, that we started a community that had a lot of harmful boundaries, doctrines, ideas that were very exclusionary. And so part of Pearl's story has been one of trying to undo those things. And so rather than uh, insisting on more and more dogma, we've become a community that invites a diversity of people to try and share life together. And we've tried to be intentional over the years to knock down barriers that we had put up, which were unnecessary and and really harmful for for people. Mm -hmm. So in light of that, I'm curious, how do you understand dogma and the importance of it and the role of it in the church? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, dogma refers to these essential truths that need to be affirmed in order to be Christian. 
doctrine is similar, but it's usually more connected to a particular expression of Christian faith. So what that particular expression would require its, you know, followers to adhere to. And one shift that we've made at Pearl is we've actually moved away from dogma and away from doctrine. So as opposed to dogma, i.e. you must wholeheartedly believe X, Y, and Z without restraint in order to be Christian, we say at Pearl that we're cultivating rhythms that accord with the life of Jesus, which are our three rhythms. So we're trying to cultivate a sacred story. So this text that we look at and we wrestle with and we are shaped by, and then we are cultivating a common table at which every person can have a voice and be part of. And then we say that the expression of the sacred story and the extension of this common table animate our lives by love. So we're really focused on the animation of life by love as opposed to fear, guilt, shame, duty, many of those religious animations. So rather than dogma, we're inviting we're inviting people to participate in the activities of Jesus' life. So it's about what we're doing together as a community. And then as opposed to doctrine, insisting on, hey, you have to believe these things just like we believe them if you want to be part of what we're doing, as opposed to as opposed to doctrine, we invite people to share in a collective uh, set of values that reflect the, the life and essence of Jesus' character and, and teaching. So we've shifted away from, from dogma to rhythms, to act, Christ-like activities, and we've shifted away from doctrine to commit ourselves as a community to embodying these, these values. And, and I think for some people that can be very scary, especially if you've spent the majority of your life in a construct with dogma and doctrine. But at Pearl, it's been really beautiful to see the diversity of people sharing in community together and conversations then about dogma and doctrine, as opposed to, you know, making it clear that now this person can belong or this person can't belong or this person is a Christian and this person is a heretic. All of that gets to just be sidestepped for us to just engage in being Christians and in sharing Christian life together. And, and I think that's actually, having done it now for several years that way, I think that is actually less scary than trying to be a faith community that insists on dogma and insists on doctrine, which if you were to press into everybody who calls those particular churches or denominations home, don't believe without reservation all of the things that they're supposed to believe to be a part of that community. And so I think that actually causes disintegration and it diminishes authenticity and it silences diversity and deeply Christian conversations about who is Christ and what has Christ accomplished and what does it mean to be part of a Christian community. Uh, I think those conversations become much more intimate and honest when you're not trying to adhere to a set of particular beliefs established by a particular denomination or church. Mm, that's beautiful. And I can say as someone who is partial to this because I attend Pearl Church and have for the last few years, crazy, it's been three years almost, but it is powerful and it is liberating and it is healing to lean into that mystery and to lean into those gray areas, you know, rather than 
pressing for certainty around dogma and doctrine, which I can say in my own life caused disintegration. So to come to this place of being shaped, I mean, values especially, that's a big, big thing. And I think values, I'll go out on a limb here. I almost feel like for whatever Christian tradition, values might shape a community more than dogma doctrine. Because you can believe whatever you want, but what you... Your values, the things you know in your heart, are what actually manifest in word and practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of churches have value statements. The sorrow that I feel about those is that they're often in stark conflict with doctrine and dogma. And so I think that can be confusing for people who find church homes and they find the value page and they love those values, but then the, the the background that is rarely talked about is very conservative dogma and doctrine that, at least by way of my understanding of the meaning-making of language, can cause great harm and can lead to very violent ideologies that exclude and shame and can become very tribal in the name of Jesus, which is just a travesty. Yeah. So this transition of Pearl Church from dogma and doctrine focus to focusing on rhythms and values, I know that didn't happen overnight. (laughs) So how did Pearl get there coming from 2001, where you had this conglomeration of different denominations, but very more conservative leaning, doctrine focused traditions how did pearl get from there to where pearl church is now mm-hmm. yeah it really has been a process and and there's a part of me that feels such guilt and shame over even sharing with you what i'm about to share because being who i am today and and where i am today and having evolved from the place that i started as a child I look back and I think, oh, I wish we could have just started this church. I just wish we could have started the church that Pearl is now 20 years ago. But then I've had to really grow in being gentle with myself and being gentle with those of us that started Pearl because for those of us who grew up in a very strong evangelical tradition, there was no way for us to start another kind of church other than the kinds of churches that we came out of. And so in some ways, it's been my experience at Pearl that has helped me evolve as a human and and also has helped Pearl Church evolve as an organism of a a collective group of people. So with that all stated, (laughs) uh, it's really been step by step and it's been really through experience and relationship with people. So one of the first changes that we made is when when we started early on, women weren't allowed to be involved in leadership positions or to uh, teach classes or to preach. And and again, I'm just so embarrassed to even say that. But again, to give some context, you know, I grew up in a church, a Plymouth Brethren church. So for 18 years in the Plymouth Brethren tradition, women wear head coverings and women don't speak. And there's this meeting on Sunday mornings called the Lord's Supper where men are able to share 
And if women have something to say, they have to whisper it to a man who shares it on their behalf. And then that gets, that's what ends up getting shared. And I look back on that now and I think, oh my God, what a horrifying environment to, to grow up in. And I even remember as a child thinking how awkward it was that, you know, these, these women couldn't speak at church. But then when we would have family gatherings or church gatherings, the, the women were leading and caring for so many things and in so many ways were in charge but the system didn't allow that to even be named or acknowledged. So that's kind of how I grew up. And the other traditions that the other six, five grew up in weren't as conservative related to that specific issue, but all of those traditions had similar kind of backgrounds where women couldn't be involved. So that's how we started Pearl. And then as we got a few years in, it just became clear that we were surrounded by amazing women who had so much to say and so much to do. And we just thought, there's, we don't really have a good reason other than some of these obscure passages by Paul to not let women speak at every level. And so that was the first big shift that we made. And then a couple of years after that, uh, it's still after that shift was made, we still had a board and it was called the elders and it just had men on the board. And we were struggling to come up with we had to bring somebody else on and we weren't quite sure who we were going to bring on. And there weren't a lot of candidates who were male, but it was surprising that we could list off several names of women who we thought would just be amazing to be on the elder team. And so then that caused us to start asking, like, why do we have a board that just has, has men? And what we realized really quickly is we were calling it the elder, the elder team uh, and, you know, elders we see throughout the New Testament. But what we recognized very quickly when we started to look into this system that we just started without thinking very deeply about it is that our elders weren't really functioning like elders. You know, biblically, elders are preaching and teaching and visiting the sick. And at Pearl, our elders weren't doing that. Underneath elders, we had pastors and our pastors were the ones doing that kind of work. And so we, we had this realization where we're calling this team elders, but it's really just a board and everybody's on it because they're men, because we think for some reason that elders have to be men. And so we just decided, hey, if let's just call this for what it is. It's, it's a board and it's overseeing the, the overall work of this community. Let's get the wisest, brightest kindest, most loving people in our church to take turns sharing in that care over our community. So that was sort of the next the next step that we that we made. And then not too long after that, we had, well, you know, because you are at Pearl, but we have somewhat of a blend of contemporary, but also sort of high church historical worship. So there's an aspect of liturgy to how we worship together. And that has caused us to draw a handful of people who come from high church traditions. So maybe they grew up Catholic or Episcopalian or Lutheran or, or whatnot. And so those people came into Pearl and they started getting married and they started having kids. And they said, we want to baptize our babies here, right? This is our home church. We don't want to have to take our baby and go to our the church we grew up in and baptize our child there. We want to invite our families and friends to come to this church to baptize our kids here. 
And so that set the board to thinking about it. And again, because most of us grew up very evangelical, there wasn't sort of an experience of infant baptism. Uh, but it became quickly apparent to us that infant baptism is more historical uh, than even believers' baptism. And the issue of baptism and and who should be baptized and what is the difference between infant baptism and believers' baptism didn't need to become something that divided us. It wasn't central. The expression of baptism wasn't central to our common faith. And so we made space for infant baptism. And I'll tell you what, the first time that I held a family's child and poured water over their head, I just knew deep in my soul that Pearl was on a good trajectory and that we had made a good decision. Because if the gospel is anything but grace, then I, I think we're making it into something that it isn't and declaring the love of God and the belonging of a child and the family of God over an infant who's yet to be able to do or say or think anything, I think is one of the purest expressions of grace that I've ever encountered. So I've been so thankful for that reminder, you know, over the course of a year when we get to, you know, baptize, baptize an infant. So that was a that was a, a big shift for us as well. And then right around that time, we just realized that our doctrinal statement, which was just your normal 15 point, 20 point evangelical doctrine statement, that it wasn't helping us, you know, it wasn't helping us do life together, be Christians together. Uh, I was beginning to regularly have conversations with people who wanted to become members at Pearl, but would just be really honest and say, hey, this fourth point or this 18th point, uh, this isn't something that I can affirm with my whole heart without reservation. And it, be, it just became really clear to us that the, the rhetorical function of a doctrinal statement, as I said just a little while ago, was causing people to disintegrate and to not be honest. And in a lot of ways was forcing them to affirm things that weren't really necessary to us sharing in Christian life together. And so we, we went away from a doctrinal statement. And for a few years, uh, we simply said that we affirm this Apostles Creed. And so we said, you know, and rather than necessarily affirming each point of that creed, what we're doing is we're saying that this creed situates our community in the, in the life and work of, of Jesus. And so we were sort of creedally organized as, as a community. Uh, but then even just a few years ago, we shifted away from that. Again, because I think if you really press people, you know, what do you believe? Do you believe every word in this creed to be true? Again, it was causing people to disintegrate and to not be authentic. And it was forcing them to adhere, again, to things that they have rightfully so a lot of questions about. And so uh, we actually ended up moving away from that to our rhythms and our values, which is what we talked about a little while ago. So to be part of Pearl, to be a member at Pearl, uh, you know, you're simply saying, yes, I, I want to be part of these Christ-like activities and I want to be cultivated by them and I want to participate in cultivating these rhythms. And, and yes, I want to grow in embodying these values as a, as a person. And for us, our values are uh, gratitude, inclusion, integration, peace, renewal, and transformation. So a, a person at, Christ, uh, at Pearl Church 
is Christian, not because of what they affirm or what they believe necessarily, as much as it is uh, their desire to participate in sacred story, common table, the animation of divine love, and then to grow in embodying these really beautiful values that we think reflect the, the life and message and teachings of Jesus. So those are a lot of, we talk about sort of unnecessary walls, barriers that have kept people from Christian life together. Those are all sort of barriers that we've been intentional over the years to knock down. Uh, in the midst of that story that I've painted in 2014, 2015, that's when we broadened our marriage practice from just being, you know, for heterosexuals to being for any two people, consenting adults who want to share in life together. And, you know, your your podcast is called what? Beautiful Tension, right? For me, uh, I mean, I could back up and sort of walk you through the, the conflict and the tension that each barrier we knocked down caused, but the ultimate tension that we experienced as a community and that I experienced as the lead pastor in a community that was knocking down this unnecessary barrier that declared only males and females could enjoy covenantal life together. Nothing stirred up our community like that decision stirred up. So that was for me uh, certainly the most the most difficult thing that I've ever participated in, and I'd be happy to talk about that more if if you want to. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned earlier this bit about how relationships were so pivotal in transforming Pearl and leading it through all these kind of waves or movements of integration and we could maybe say reformation <laughs> transformation you know and so i'm curious about broadening the marriage practice and what did it look like for relationships to bring that change about in pearl church yeah great question you know backing up just a little bit i think the heart of that question is how do we go about discerning good in the world and in life together? And particularly within a Christian framework, I think Richard Rohr lays out really well. He often talks about what he calls the tricycle. So the three wheels, and if you can picture a tricycle, you have the big wheel on the front and the two little wheels on the back. And he says within the Catholic tradition, the big wheel on the front is tradition. And then on the back, you have the Bible on one wheel and you have experience as the other wheel. And then he explains within, within the Protestant tradition, I think he's primarily talking about even the evangelical tradition, that front wheel is the big wheel is the Bible. And then on the back, you have tradition and you have experience. And, and then Rohr argues, he says, if we're being really honest about what contributes most deeply to how we go about discerning what is good and right as a Christian people, uh, that front wheel is experience. Uh, experience is what is the primary lens through which we understand scripture and through which we understand tradition. So, so I think experience is central. And then I would just throw out one more. So Wesley 
uh, has what's called sort of the the quadlateral way of sort of arriving at at truth. And he has those three: the Bible, tradition, and experience. But he adds a fourth, uh, and that fourth component that he adds is reason. And I just I love that, and I think it's so honest to what was unfolding in the Reformation and through sort of enlightenment was how can we as Christians think reasonably? But I also think that that fourth component got lost very quickly, especially as evangelicalism got burbed into the world. Evangelicalism declares the Bible, you know, sola scriptura, it's all about the Bible. Uh, And they don't even acknowledge tradition and they're very reticent to acknowledge experience as being influential in how they go about discerning good. But I would love to reclaim all three of those and even to, to touch back all the way to Wesley and to say, let's not just think about our experience and our tradition and what the Bible's saying. Let's also be reasonable human beings, right? We're not in a war with science. And we're not in a war with psychology. and We're not in a war with other faith traditions. These are all ways of being and ways of seeing that can help us become more fully human, more compassionate, more loving. And I even think more deeply Christian for those who choose a Christian path. So, so I would say that, that yes, experiences has been front and center for us as a community by way of the barriers that we've been intentional to knock down, right? Women can't lead or women can't speak or women can't be on the board. But hey, we have these incredible women who could actually speak and lead and be on the board and we'd be better off because of them. So that's experience. And, and I would also say it's it's just simply being trying to be reasonable. It's our experience and it's trying to be reasonable. And then and then we go from there to ask, well, what what has tradition said about this and what does the Bible say about this? And and if you're if we're being honest about that, then then tradition shows us that it's the church has interacted with the Bible in so many different ways over so many different generations. There's no one tradition that perfectly aligns with some kind of perceived literal alignment with the scriptures. That's just a fantasy that doesn't exist. We're all interpreting. And I think we're primarily interpreting through our experiences. So experience and, and trying to be reasonable have been two, I think, facets that have shaped how we've gone about knocking down uh, barriers. As I said before, this ends part one of my conversation with Mike. Part two, which is also the last episode of the season, will air next week. So stay tuned for the rest of our conversation. We talk about what happened when Pearl Church decided to become affirming for the queer community. As I wrap up today's episode, I again want to thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to the podcast. I know there's a lot of podcasts out there, so I truly appreciate it. You, the listener, make this show possible. Speaking of which, if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider making a small donation to help support the podcast. You can do so at anchor.fm forward slash beautiful tension, which is listed in the show notes. You can also rate and review the podcast, share beautiful tension with your friends, and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss future episodes. I appreciate your support. Well, that's all I've got for today. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on Beautiful Tension.